Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Christopher Paul Carey, Henry G. Franke III, and Dr. Garen Roberts discuss Edgar Rice Burroughs' Moon Trilogy on its 100th anniversary. Christopher is author of several authorized Burroughs continuation novels. Henry is the editor of the Burroughs Bulletin, the journal of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, and Garen has written extensively about the pulps and has edited several collections of pulp stories. The panel was part of HerbFest 2023, which was held in conjunction with PulpFest. This podcast was recorded on August 5th at PulpFest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Christopher begins. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, as uh, was just stated, it is the centennial of the publication, the pulp publication of The Moon Maid. It's a, a, a trilogy, The Moon Maid, uh, The Moon Men, and The Red Hawk, which were collected together in hardcover as The Moon Maid. Um, uh, is really high, very, very highly regarded uh, among uh, Burroughs fans and critics. Uh, Richard Lupoff pretty much said it was one of his very, very best uh, works. And, um, and it's also uh, very, has the most convoluted uh, writing history and editing history. And it's amazing that it turned out to be such, <laughs> such a stellar work. Um, because of that, um, and it, it just goes to show that ERB had that golden touch, I guess. Um, so I wanted to uh, first start out, I guess I should introduce my panel here, but I've got Henry Franke, he's the editor of the Burroughs Bulletin. Uh, he's also writing the um, afterwards in our author li ERB authorized library editions that Edgar Rice Burroughs Inc. is putting out. And then we have Garen Roberts uh, here. Uh, editor of the anthology, let me get this right, what, what is it, the anthology, Let's say it, go Prentice ahead and Hall say it. Anthology of Prentice Hall, there, I'm forgetting the, well, Prentice Hall Anthology of Science Fiction and Fantasy, a very uh, uh, great work. Um, and he is also the author of the introduction to this book here, Cosmic Epics, which we just debuted here at Pulp Fest which has uh, collects the first works in Edgar Rice Burroughs' major, major science fiction series, uh, including The Moon Maid. So we have the text of The Moon Maid in here. Uh, but Garen wrote a wonderful uh, introduction going over the historical context of when the book was written and how it fits in and how it influenced other literature, uh, how all three of these books uh, really kind of defined their genres. So um, we have this for sale at our... Uh, at our uh, table. I should also mention that uh, in honor of the, the Moon Maid Centennial, um, Jim Gerlach of ERB Books is working with us to put out um, the uh, Moon Maid Centennial edition. And if you've ever seen Jim's books, they are amazing. They come in these amazing clamshell uh, cases with tons of extras. He, he recreates historical documents. Um, and it's actually going to be the full trilogy, and they're going to be three volumes in the box set. And it's got stunning artwork. Um, I know Mark Schultz did artwork for it. Um, tons and tons of artwork. Um, so I would encourage you to check that out. That's at erbbooks.com. And that should be coming out soon. He's, he's working on it right now. Um, and, uh, oh, and Jim Gerlach told me to mention that they will also be, their next books are gonna be, I'm not sure the order here, but uh, Pirates of Venus and The Land of the Time Forgot. They're gonna put out these deluxe, super deluxe editions of those. So, but um, to get started here, uh, I'd like to ask Henry to, um, if you could talk a little bit about the, um, how, this, how this novel got written. What were his, what were Edgar Burroughs' inspirations for writing this? What were his motivations? Um, and what were some of the publishing challenges revolving around the novel? 
Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for, uh, for coming to the, uh, the panel here. And as, uh, as Chris pointed out, uh, The Moon Maid, which some people see as one, the first of the three novels in a trilogy, or uh, thanks to the way publishing has gone, have seen it as the book that brings all three stories together into a single volume. One of the reasons that the, that the history of writing and publishing uh, this trilogy has been an interesting, complicated uh, historical search for the facts, and we're still searching for some of these facts. And that actually adds to the, the uniqueness of this part of Burroughs' of genre. But in fact, uh, even though Burroughs uh, admitted that he wrote for entertainment, uh, Burroughs would sometimes get fired up about issues that concerned him socially and politically. And it happened, of course, at World War I, and uh, the outlook uh, against the Allied, you know, the Axis powers, and in particular against Germany, raid fired of Americans, and Burroughs was among those. He was, in fact, in the, in the uh, Illinois militia. He wore a uniform. He was a captain and a major during uh, World War I years, preparing for uh, people to be out in operating uniform. He took this very seriously. He thought it was an American thing to do, to be part of the war effort, even before America entered the war. And while he was concerned with that threat to democracy and freedom, he had his eye on communism as another threat to the world, America and beyond. Uh, the IWW, International Workers, concerned him. They'd been around for a while. Iraq, he formed in Chicago, his hometown. Uh, and then the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917. And that really concerned him greatly because, again, these, this was an ally of of the Allied powers, and they had just had a major revolution, and they had withdrawn from the war. He was concerned enough that he actually contacted uh, the uh, Department of Justice and offered to write an entertainment-based uh, warning to the public about the threat of communism, Bolshevism. Uh, and this was 1917. Uh, and ironically, the DOJ response back was, we don't really think it's a smart idea to stir up the public on things like this. Uh, we don't think it's that great an idea. Now, Burroughs, who took this very seriously, wrote, actually wrote back a sarcastic reply that he thought that you know, he couldn't do any damage, but he might be able to help. So he went ahead in 1919 and wrote what, is, what he titled Under the Red Flag. As he promised, he put it uh, into the 21st century, just far enough where you could see see the Bolshevik Revolution take over the world. And America would fall, and social and political and commercial progress would die. And that was his warning, is this would have ramifications for the human race and the world. And he crafted the novel that way. And so all this, the, the, the start, the foundation of, of what we call the Moon Man now came from that perspective and that warning and that very depressing uh, world culture that would set in. However, even though he tried both slicks and pulps, uh, he got, uh, I think, uh, 11 rejections among you know, Cosmopolitan and uh, Saturday Evening Post and a number of pulps, including uh, Argosy and his uh, favorite editor at the time, Bob Davis, who all basically said, no, thank you. And in many cases, they were concerned about rolling the public or they thought it would not help readership, that magazines would push what looked like a political agenda. So, uh, and he got very frustrated. He was frustrated to the point where he actually thought about publishing the book himself. Uh, instead, he moved on to other things. But uh, he believed that there was something of a, of a lack of courage on the part of, of people to get the word out. So clearly he was fired up about this. Well, Burroughs also did not believe in wasting his time if he wrote a story. So he decided that his way of getting around wasting the story was actually turning it into a, one of his fantastic adventures. And to do that, he came up with this frame with the trilogy is based on, which started out with, with a prequel called The Moon Maid. And he would then convert the, Under the Red Flag to fit into the storyline where the invasion would come from the moon back to, uh, back to Earth. So he, he had this very interesting uh, storyline structure he created that he could incorporate the work he had done. And that really required him to adjust the Under the Red Flag manuscript in just a matter literally of hours uh, in, uh, in January of uh, 1921. 
1922, sorry. So he got his frame set. He decided how to change the names and the setting. He created this very interesting uh, framing sequence because he was very well, you know, believed in framing sequences, as you know. Sometimes Igarus Burroughs would appear. And he did this with a very interesting metaphysical idea that reincarnation occurs, that people could actually, because time actually was not a thing after all, that was just a present, that some people, including the Julian that our uh, narrator speaks to, actually can remember some past lives and some future lives. So that was his frame to help this storyline go from 1967 to 2409 eventually. So each of the characters in the individual novels are Julians, and they have a number appended to their name. So, so Julian III yeah. is, the, is the narrator to the narrator, and he tells the story of Julian V, Julian IX, and Julian Twentieth. Very interesting way of framing it, and he did two other things when he did that. Number one is he, he did his first major crossover, because he brings John Carter Mars in. Uh, and therefore, up to a point, up to 1967, or at least say 1922, it fit a broader chronology of Burroughs. But by definition of where the story went, certainly things got complex after that. But it really showed an expansive set of thinking because he, Burroughs created a number of tropes for this storyline, very unique to his canon, and I believe it's one of the reasons why this has been such a popular storyline, even though each of the stories kinds of, they actually read a little differently, and that's because of how the storyline developed. Ironically enough, the person that eventually bought uh, the Moon Maid was Bob Davis, the very person that said, no way on the Moon Maid. And so it turns out that Argosy All Story actually published Moon Maid, then the Moon Man uh, a couple of years later, and then uh, a year later, sorry, and then the Red Hawk. So it went from a political treatise as a warning to the public into a fantastic storyline. But let's not kid ourselves, the warning of communism is what the Moon Men is all about. And the Red Hawk is the final closing of the chapter. In other words, you didn't pay attention. You allowed disarmament to happen. Yes, it was bad. It, you, the world was exhausted, which was an interesting anti-war approach, but you can't afford to completely disarm. Another theme of his yeah. with uh, the Lost Continent, Beyond yeah. 30. So he really put a lot of... Uh, a, themes and, uh, and tropes into the storyline set. And I think that's a primary reason why readers today find it so interesting. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to continue with you a little bit because I know you know this history pretty well. But, or we can discuss it because we we're actually, we're actually we're doing a little research this morning that kind of contradicted previous research that we had heard about. Um, uh, the novel not only had that very convoluted origin, where it was rewritten and kind of reskinned as a science fiction series, um, it also um, had a very singular and complex editing history. Um, uh, and so there are, you, you look at the, there are a lot of different editions that are out there. And like when Ace, Ace, for instance, published it, they used the pulp text for part of it. They used the the hardcover McClurg text for you know for the Moon Maid, I believe. Um, so I just want uh, let's discuss that a little right. bit. So that's uh, that's another fascinating point about uh, readers who actually want to see what Burroughs wrote himself. And the problem is, it is still it is uh, still not completely confirmed what the actual outcome of a, of a Burroughs view of these stories are. So yes, there was some editing done. Uh, by uh, Argosy All Story, which by definition could change the source of a manuscript. Because remember, the first thing that Burroughs did was he, he pen and inked over the, under the red flag manuscript to update it to, to fit the Moon uh, Trilogy storyline and setting. Uh, then, of course, the pulp editors had their way at it, and while the, the changes weren't massive, they certainly uh, impacted everything from word choice to a, a here and there are seen being taken out. Then you go back to Burroughs knowing that what he always wants to do is get his stories into book form. And normally this is how Burroughs recovers from any of the edit editorial uh, machinations of his script. He goes back to the original, except in this case 
McClurg, had, you know, the decision was to put all three into a single book. Well, the, the, the book could not handle that word count, which, I, which was, a, gosh, close to 100,000 words or more. More, I think. Right. Yeah. And not 100 uh, yeah. percent sure. It's, it's, <laughs> it's it a is, lot. It, it, is, it would have been a thick book. Yeah. And so the question has actually been: How was the uh, trilogy actually re-edited, and by whom, to fit the McClurg page count requirement? And through the years, it's been reported that it was Burroughs himself that actually uh, took the pen and. Uh, abridged both the Moon Men and the Red Hawk pretty significantly with the page count down with not too much uh, impact on the Moon Maid itself. But the reality is there's looks like there's evidence that potentially it might have been the McClurg editor that took manuscripts. <clears throat> so Henry and I, I have digital copies of the manuscripts with me and we were examining them this morning and looking through the, the manuscript of the Moon Men, and um, there are these broad swaths of text that are cut out um, and seamed together, um, and there are edits throughout, but none of the edits look like they're in Edgar Rice Burroughs' handwriting. So that contradicts this, and, uh, and we're trying to remember where we've read. I looked in Porges, it was not in the Erwin Porges' bio. Um, so I'm not sure. There, I know there's an art, there are a few articles in the bibliophiles. Uh, Alan Hansen. Okay. Oh, Alan Hansen reported it. Yes. Is that? Do you remember where that was from? It's, I have to check. It was a yeah. been a Burroughs bulletin. Yeah. Um, and I know I know um, Robert Barrett also wrote a, a really good article on the history of the changes in the moon uh, in the moon trilogy. So, um, but there may be supplemental evidence. We're just looking at the manuscript. Um, there could be additional evidence that we don't have access to right here while we're here. Um, and I haven't gone back and looked at the correspondence. So this, this just issue just came up because we just thought it was a settled matter that Edgar Rice Burroughs had, had uh, trimmed it down, which is an, uh, very unusual because he hated to be edited. He did not like it. Um, but uh, in the end, um, 15,000 words were cut from the whole trilogy. Uh, there was very little cut from the Moon Maid, um, although there was one significant scene that was cut. There was a lot cut from the Moon Men and a significant portion cut from the Red Hawk. The Red Hawk is the shortest. It's really a novella um, rather than a novel. Um, but the scene in... Um, so Henry was talking about reincarnation, this reincarnation scheme in the novels. The scene that was cut was very, very vital and kind of recasts the, if you reinsert it, it totally changes your perception of, of that idea of reincarnation. There's a scene uh, in which Julian, the hero, Julian V, uh, and Naila, who's the, the princess in the, in the story, are captured by the Vagas. The Vagas are the quadrupedal um, race. Jail and St. John, of course, drew, drew them as centaurs, which is not correct. Um, <laughs> having an extra set of uh, limbs. But um, uh, while they're captured by the Vagas, um, Naila reveals to um, Julian that all the people of the moon, all the Yuga, that's the human race of the moon, uh, can remember their past lives. They can actually remember them. And she actually recounts some of the, her past lives to, to Julian and Julian is very intrigued. You know, ERB comes right out and says this because he has he has a vested interest in reincarnation, <laughs> um, and it's it's left unexplained what exactly that means. But it but it gives you this feeling. When I read it, it gave me this feeling that Julian must have some connection. There must be some connection to the moon that he had. Like why, like why why is he the only Earth human who has memories, and why does he have future memories? Because the even the even the yuga of, of Vana, the the inner world of the moon, um, this all I should say I don't know if we said stated that outright, but this is set in the interior of the moon. They actually go through a crater, and there's a world inside the moon. Um, but why uh, why do the yuga not remember? They only remember their past lives, but Julian remembers his future lives. So it's an interesting mystery. Um, I was wondering there was a there was a passage that. And part of the part of the passage that was cut, there was a, a reference to the fact that um, 
the Yuga have multiple wives. And I was wondering if that was something that was just, they just didn't want to go there in that, and uh, they cut that out, but they re, they, that was connected to the idea of reincarnation. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, so that, that was cut out. And, and other editions that have been, had said to be complete, <laughs> there was a Bison Books edition that came out uh, that claimed to be a complete edition, did not have that text in it. Our new, new edition here, I've restored the text. And I know Jim Gerlach, he's restoring a lot of the text. Um, he, he had uh, access uh, to the manuscripts and restored the text that was cut throughout the whole trilogy. So that centennial edition is going to be really a good, good one to get a hold of. But, uh, um, is there anything more you want to talk about the, the, the editing? I'll, uh, I'll throw in, a, and, and Chris is exactly right, and this is why I think intrigues, uh, especially uh, readers who want to see the most of Burroughs himself, yeah. is that a number of uh, publishers now have tried their best to get it, was supposedly the, the true complete edition. Herbell Press, as you recall, yeah. printed, uh, you know, published versions of Moon Man and Red Hawk yeah. to try to get at, at the true expanded original text, except yeah. that the reality was they came from sources themselves that had some editing done. Yeah. So this has become almost a holy grail for Burroughs <laughs> readers. Yep. Thanks. Yep. Sure. Um, so, Garen, um, could you uh, talk a little bit about the historical context? So how does the Moon Maid fit into, into um, the literature of the time? And what, what influences did it have? What did it influence? How did it impact science fiction, fantasy? Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Chris and Henry. Uh, it's an honor to be with you, too. Um, there's a lot of neat things going on, neat being a technical term, I guess. In history, in the world of scientific romance, not to be called science fiction until 1930, there, of course, were the traditions of Jules Verne. I'm looking at that 1874 mysterious island in the auction tonight. Whoa, is that interesting, first American edition. Um, the works of H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells, H. Ryder Haggard, and others um, that wrote all kinds of things in terms of literary tradition, in terms of pioneer, pioneering scientific romance. A real pivotal year, it seems to me, is 1912. 1912, of course, we remember April 1912, does anybody remember what happened then? The Titanic went down, okay? That was that very, very interesting. And then, of course, just in the last month, we lost four explorers who were trying to see what remains of the Titanic. But maybe even more importantly, 1912 was a very interesting period in publishing history. This is the period, of course, where we're seeing the very early works of Edgar Rice Burroughs in print on a large scale. Tarzan of the Apes, and even before that, uh, Under the Moons of Mars, or Princess of Mars. In 1912, the postal system really wreaked havoc on the publishing situation. I've researched and read this for years, and a couple months ago I was thinking about this presentation, and I said, you know, I better make sure I got this right. You know, because I've read all kinds of different things about 1912 and the postal thing, and I've even published a few things about it. But I better make sure, verify this is all right. Well, the good news was, is I hadn't made it up. 1912 was indeed an important year, because the postal rates changed on a type of mailing that could be sent through the mails. From about the 1830s, more specifically about the 1860s to the 1920s, the most popular entertainment medium in this country, of course, was the dime novel. There's a few of them even out on the, the display floor uh, this weekend. The dime novel, I've written extensively about that. There's a lot of better experts on it than me, but I love it. I think of J. Randall Cox and Charles Bragan in the 30s and other experts on the dime novel. The dime novel was dependent on the males, and there's tremendous, wonderful stories of dime novels being shipped from the publishing centers of the United States, believe it or not, not only New York, but Cleveland of all places, to 
soldiers on both sides of the Civil War in the 1860s. In fact, there are legends and stories of Union and Confederate soldiers camped across rivers before the battle, the night before, exchanging dime novels back and forth. This is fascinating material if you start to think about it and look at it. Well, 1912, the postal system, which had Frank Munsey, who was a big publisher of things like Argosy and others, very, very upset. And it was the beginning of a, of a transition that would take about 20 years to what we call the pulp magazine. Pulp magazines kind of overlap. We think of 1896 and Argosy All Story and all those things, Munsey snuff, and not to belabor all of that, Edgar Rice Burroughs lands right in the middle of it. And he is very important at making the transition from the dime novel tradition to the pulp magazine tradition. And if you read enough dime novels, enough 1920s and 30s science fiction, and you see Burroughs in this period from the teens and 20s, the man was, forgive my opinion, he was pretty close to genius. He was very aware of the culture, and, and Henry detailed this very, very well. Um, it was something else, and he knew, and he changed with the market. Well, in 1912, the dime novel was on its way out, the postal uh, system. When you measured your profits in the penny and half penny per issue, and you raised the postal rate a penny or two, that wipes out, no matter how many copies you make, you're not going to make a profit. In the dime novel era, you, you mass-produced and you made small profit margins. Now, if the profit margins were non-existent, the more you produced, the more money you lost. Pulp magazines also went to a direct sales in the big cities like New York, and there's some people, I love these pictures of the newsstands in the 20s and 30s and all that kind of stuff. Burroughs knew all about that kind of thing, and that was really, really important. So as Henry detailed very, very nicely, and Christopher as well, there's this whole political thing going on too, right? We've got World War I. My grandfather, he was older when my mom was born, was in World War I. He was gassed in France, and he was an invalid from about 1919 till his passing in 1959, when I was a year old. Um, it was said that he liked me. But he lived during that era. And there's some really interesting things going on. And then we get into 1923, we hear some of these other histories. And I'm partial to some of Burroughs' works for all kinds. Somebody asked Jack Williamson, you remember who Jack Williamson was? 1908 till 2000, whatever it was. He wrote for me and he wrote the introduction to my textbook. They said, what was your favorite story you ever wrote? And he said, well, he said, it's like, picking your favorite of your children. You can't do it. You like them for different reasons. And I think that's how I look at Edgar Rice Burroughs' works. Princess of Mars is kind of hard for me to top. I, that book, maybe it was the time of my life it came around. It, it, it's pretty cool, okay, for lack of a more technical academic word. But then you get, as has been mentioned, Richard Lupoff mentions the Moon Man trilogy, and how could you not, as a young boy, love, not love those ace paper bags with, with the Frazetta covers on them, right? The more Moon Maid was gorgeous, wasn't she? And the story is neat, the mystery <coughs> is complex, and it's all that kind of thing. I don't want to talk too much, but Burroughs did a couple of things that I will mention just briefly. I think he was a, very much a true visionary. He worked to create archetypes, not necessarily the first scientific romances, but the models upon which everything else was based. You know, Sherlock Holmes was not the first consulting detective. Oh heck, we could go back to Poe, we could go back to French literature and find detectives long before Sherlock Holmes, but Holmes was the archetype. Similarly with Burroughs' work, he wrote archetypal stuff. He had, and I think it's vision, to take the traditions of the past, bring them to the future, account for Postal regulations, societal and cultural changes, World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution, as Henry really nicely details. And there it is. I want to tell you about a couple of sequels that have fascinated me uh, since thinking about The Moon Maid in 1923 and then the hardcover in 26. And by the way, the hardcover, even though it's edited by McClurk, is still pretty darn fat. <laughs> it's one of the fatter ones, and now I'm all excited. There's going to be more, you know. And, <laughs> I know, Garen, get a life, but it's, it's just really wonderful, you know? 
1929, a few years after the moon made, there was, and many of you know this, I'm preaching to the choir, there was a very famous Chicago Tribune uh, reporter, world adventurer, he played the part to the hilt. He had an eye patch, Floyd Gibbons, you ever hear of him? And a very famous story that very much to me has influence from the moon made. It's called The Red Napoleon. And it's about all these kinds of conflicts, Henry detailed some of them, some of the complexity of life, all that kind of thing. It's interesting to note that things like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, they're all after the moon made. You know, Buck Rogers wouldn't appear in Amazing Stories till 1928. And... Um, this is pretty neat. And one of the first things that hit me when I reread, and I was rereading the Bison Collection, which I'm glad to know is not even definitive <laughs> itself. I was reading the Bison, because it's supposed to be the most... Anyway, I didn't like the intro to it anyway that some wise guy wrote. Um, the ship at the start, you know what the ship at the start of the novel is called? It's called the Warren Harding. Well, who was president from 21 to 23? Warren G. Harding. So there's, if, if you're looking at it from a historical context, and I'll quiet down now, there's some really interesting things going on, and Burroughs was pretty close to genius at tapping into the cultural experience of the people, the history, and then their personal experience at the time, too. That's enough for me. That's cool. I never made the Harding connection, so I to jot that down. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty cool. There was uh, the Operator 5 Purple Invasion sequence from 36 to 38 that I think has some... Yeah. That's enough. <laughs> um, let's see here. What do we got? Um, one thing um, I, di I did want to touch on, we talked about the reincarnation and all. I did want to touch on, like, there are some themes in this novel that Edgar Rice Burroughs went to over and over again. Uh, but I think that they, they may have their best expression in The Moon Maid or close to it. Um, he, he, Henry mentioned, the, he alluded to the, a lack of time at one point. That was a theme that went throughout um, a lot of ERB. Time does not exist. Think about it. Um, uh, you've got Pellucidar, where you go down to Pellucidar and suddenly you lose all sense of time. Um, uh, you've got Tarzan even out in the jungle, you know, when he peels off the veneer of civilization and starts, you know, moving through the upper terraces and, and all, uh, you know, all sense of time disappears. Um, and in uh, Thuvia Made of Mars, he, he, he went into it real deep. It's almost like that novel, was, it's cra crazy creative for the time period. It's like a Philip K. Dick novel written in, when, when did that come out? You know, 19, early 1900s, let's just say. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and it has to do with um, really uh, the mind being everything, you know. And um, all is mind. That's a, that's a phrase from from that book. All is mind. Um, and there's a, there's groups of people who are um, have been imagined into existence from the human mind, and, and then it gets to the point where you can't tell which ones were created by whom. You know, which are the original, which are real. Um, and kind of blurs that line there. Um, and similarly, we have in the, in the Moon Maid, we've got this time does not exist thing, which plays into the whole reincarnation um, aspect of it. So it's the same guy being um, just irrespective of time. There he is on the timeline, you know. And I, I always kind of wondered if Michael Moorcock might not have been influenced by that with the Eternal Champion. I know that's a different Absolutely. sort of concept. That's you know multiple universes and all, but it is still different incarnations, sort of, you know, different versions of the same character across a multiverse. Where this is across time, you know. Uh, and he was a, obviously a huge Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. Um, but um, and um, I did want to mention. I think that H. Ryder Haggard did have an influence on Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, um, I mean, he admitted it. There's a, there's a quote, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he, he quoted Haggard and Kipling uh, as being in, uh, influences on himself. And, um, you know, as you know, in um, H. Ryder Haggard's work, he did a lot of work with reincarnation. So I think, I think that's probably where he, where he pulled that idea from. It's so different from anything 
that he ever wrote about or ever you know, wrote afterwards even. Um, but uh, I just thought I'd mention those. The other thing I wanted to talk about is what you mentioned, Henry, the, the, um, uh, this being like the first time that he really created a universe. He had started doing crossovers as early as, I think it's 1913, 14, with Eternal, The Eternal Lover, where he put Lord Greystoke in, the, in, a, in a novel that wasn't a Tarzan novel. Um, it was set on the Greystoke estate in, uh, in Africa. And, um, uh, and so he did, he did some uh, minor crossovers between, between characters, the, the Mad King and that, that kind of that cycle there. But it wasn't until The Moon Maid that he actually crossed over the worlds of Barsoom and the moon, Vana, the inner, the inner world of the moon. In fact, the ship that they travel to the moon in is called the Barsoom, um, and uh, um, you know, and it's mentioned that as what is as every child of the twentieth yep. century knows, or something like that, and you know, John knows about John Carter basically up to his birthday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but but then that that creates this strange incongruity because as the Mars series of the Barsoom series went on. There are scenes that take place on Earth, and yet there is no great war going on uh, being fought because um, there's this war that goes from 19... What is it? 19... 1960 right. When the original World War start of 1914. 1914, yeah. I was trying to get the, the beginning here. It's 1967. And then... Um, but that, that... So how does that, how does that work? You know, kind of like... It, it doesn't quite fit. And there, there's another novel which is Beyond 30, also publishes The Lost Continent, but it also seems to have this alternate future. Because obviously he didn't know what was going to happen, and then he ended up writing into that future. So um, uh, we actually have addressed that in the, the new Edgar Rice Burroughs Universe uh, series, actually in my, in my novel, The Victory Harbin Fires of Halos. We, we come up with a solution for that, but I won't spoil it because it's kind of a big reveal in that book. But... Uh, uh, it's interesting that you know that he made decided to make that that creative choice, um, but uh, um, another interesting thing I wrote in my notes here, um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Did you, I don't know if you mentioned this, but he dictated this on an Edaphone. It was one of his first two yeah. novels that he actually uh, dictated in part. The, the moon, the moon made. I should moon say made. the moon made was dictated. So. Um, but uh, I, was, I was reading in the Forges bio, uh, uh, the man, Tar, uh, Edgar Esperos, the man who created Tarzan, that uh, his editor didn't think there was enough action in The Moon Made. And so ERB kind of used that as, a, as an excuse. He's like, well, okay, I'm gonna, my next one I'm going to write out for you, and it's going to be better. <laughs> but, but obviously, people did like The Moon Made. Um, uh, let's see. As adaptations in the, uh, you want to talk about adaptations and sequels and things like that? Certainly. Why? <laughs> you wrote about it in your article, but um, so there were some comics and. Uh, right, I, you, as you can yeah. imagine, and and I will say that the the number of themes in these books is is pretty significant, and uh, it yeah. it'd be interesting as you reread these stories how you as you find these how many of those do you think are unique. And, and so the, he had built such an interesting world and brought that world back to Earth. That's probably pretty critical. It's not like Mars, well, I guess later they did, didn't they? They flew Murray. But it's not like Mars came and invaded the Earth or, or Venus came and intruded in our societies. This is very different. We had, we had a, a degenerating society for the moon coming and literally changed the face of the human race on our planet. Uh, this is a pretty significant thing. It begs for possible adaptations and additional storylines. And, and so you saw, for example, Tarzan versus the Moon Man, with Tarzan going into the future and dealing with the Moon Man in a Dark Horse Comics adaptation for four-issue series that was drawn by Thomas Yates. There's an example of taking advantage and yet another crossover. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, with Burroughs Incorporated working with uh, American mythology, you had additional expansion of not only the storyline but characters with other Moon Maids Yes. Uh, that uh, have been and are continuing on yeah. to add to the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, some of those are canonical. 
Yeah, so the, um, the, the moon, we started canonizing some of the, the uh, American mythology comics and the comics that we, we ourselves produce at Egg Race Burroughs Incorporated. Um, uh, the, there's a, uh, a comic uh, miniseries called The Moon Made the Three Keys, and that has a new moon maid in it called Loina instead of Naila. <laughs> And um, uh, we will actually be releasing that as a graphic novel soon. We're collecting Egg Race Burroughs Incorporated is going to be putting that out as a graphic novel. It's going to have a new story in it by Mike Wolfer. Um, so look for that. That's actually going to be launching this month on Kickstarter. So, um, and of course you have the novel Swords Against the Moon Men. And if you came by the art show, you got to see some of Mark Wheatley's uh, original artwork for that, uh, which is here written by Chris Carey. And again, this uh, this... Uh, expanded the crossover with John Carter by simply bringing in John Carter. He didn't just communicate by radio, he, he got involved in the action. So this is obviously a setting in Iraqi as much as it complicates the chronologies, which apparently you've all fixed now. You have, you have this richness of opportunities in storytelling, and so there's more to come. Has, there is more to come. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, um, when, I, when I wrote Swords Against the Moon Men, there are some questions that weren't, weren't answered. For instance, how did the, the Kalkars, the moon, the moon, the evil moon people, come to Earth? How did they, why were they not crushed by Earth's gravity, much greater gravity? So I had to solve that in my, my, uh, my novel. And then Will Murray is actually writing, you know, he, he just wrote Tarzan Back to Mars, and that's where, uh, again, there's a Martian, or there's going to be an invasion of Earth. So he had to solve, solve that problem, and I, I had my solution. It's very similar, but I had a, I had a treatment by the eighth, eight, the eighth ray, basically. You know, Egg Race Burroughs had this pseudoscience that he had created, um, a, a different scheme of rays that had different properties about them. Uh, so I had a treatment. So when um, uh, the Calcars went to Earth, they had to treat themselves to make themselves uh, lighter, basically, so they were not crushed by the Earth's gravity, and or actually more, how does that work, more dense? <laughs> yeah, more dense, yeah, yeah. And then vice versa, you could, you could reverse, the, the, reverse it for going back to the, to the moon. Um, but Will Murray had his own, own solution, so you should read his book about that. But, um, that's pretty much all I've got here. You have more to talk it's, about, Gary? No. I, well, sure, but, but yeah. no. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a I'd wonderful like to, topic. I'd like to, and this, I'd like to mention this uh, as well, especially with uh, Garen and, and, the, and the social context and historical context. One of the interesting comments that uh, Burroughs made in Red Hawk, and by the way, one reason it was short, Bob Davis begged Burroughs to write the third storyline, to complete the trilogy, because obviously he, what Burroughs did kind of unique in his stories, he killed off the main character twice in the series. I mean, this, in some ways, this is a kind of a depressing storyline, all the way to, even to the end, right? America is decimated, as the world is, and now they're about to be able to start recovering. 400 years of this, that's, that's pretty depressing. Um, but he mentions the context that Red Hawk and his people have taken on characteristics of the Native American society, uh, culture. Uh, he makes this comment where real Amer Native Americans you know, watch these goings on all these years of, of the Calcar uh, descendants and uh, American descendants and basically say, you know, time will pass and we'll be back. You know, our, our way will continue, our way will continue. It's interesting to see the culture adopted by Burroughs with his, these characters. What's more interesting is Burroughs put rural world locations in because this was uh, Southern California. We, uh, fans have actually walked the route of yeah. doing a 20th Red Hawk to the coast, because it's actually described in the book. You can actually follow the, the path. He, he uses, he kind of mutates the place names, right. but you can figure out where they are. Like, I think he has Malibu, Malibu, or something like that. There's actually a map you know, showing this. You, yeah. can, you can take the walk. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting that the, the three works are just so disparate. They're so different. The first one is your typical um, planetary romance, you know, or lunar, lunar, lunar romance, you know. Um, and the second one is this really dire dystopian uh, novel. And then the third one is a post-apocalyptic, you know, more uplifting uh, conclusion to the series. Um, 
But um, I, I always loved the Moon Maid. That was, I was always into the planetary romance. And so when I wrote Swords Against the Moon Men, I, did, I, I was like, I have to come up with a way that we can continue to have more adventures on the moon because basically as this, after the moon made uh, in the invasion of, uh, of Earth, which happens in the prologue of the moon men actually, um, uh, the Kalkars actually lost contact, like the, the Earth, Earth lost contact with the moon. So the Kalkars, whoever was left behind on the moon, they no longer, and basically he said they were so, the Kalkars means the thinkers, actually, and it's used in an ironic uh, uh, means because he was implying basically that these people actually were, these people who created the revolution were very uneducated, um, who the, the Kalkars were originally Yuga who broke off, basically, and they were the, you know, the communists. Uh, and um, uh, losing my train of thought here, but um, anyway, I just find it interesting. So I wanted I wanted to find a way to get get back to the moon right. so that we can have more lunar adventures, and so that's that was why I wrote Swords Against the Moon Men to do that. So I wanted Edgar Rice Burroughs Inc. to be able to back before I worked for the company <laughs> to be able to get new authors to write new stories. So, any questions? Um, so, you mentioned that the third book is post-apocalyptic, and that's a really popular topic the last couple of decades. You know, Stephen King's stand on the things that are going on right now. Do you feel like Burroughs was uh, pretty innovative in his third book, or what was his influence there? I'm not sure what the influence was, but I do think I do think it was innovative. When I read it when I was a teenager, that that was actually my favorite of them. I mean, I did love the Moon Maid, but like I, for some reason, I really took to the Red Hawk, and I think it was that spirit. Like the, there's a real big theme in in this series of fighting back against oppression, and this is the book, um, you know, where where things really start start happening, you know, because the 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 first one was like, yeah they're kind of locked in this dystopian world. It's just awful, you know? Um, and it, it, it's just very, very, it's, it's, it's Edgar Rice Burroughs' most depressing novel, for sure. <laughs> you know, not saying not to, not to read it. It's, it's gripping, it's a, it's a great novel, but it's really dire. I mean, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, just what Henry was saying, the idea of having, having it Edgar Rice Burroughs had a very favorable opinion of Native American culture. You know, he served in the in the Seventh uh, U.S. Cavalry and uh, you know got exposure to the to the Native American culture there, and uh, uh, obviously had that shows up in the Mars series as well. Um, but the War Chief and the Apache Devil, of course, yeah, yep, and and all, and so that that's it's interesting to see him using that 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 concept and you know really. Working that into the to the culture and the solution to you know how this the resolution I should say of the series. Dima, I mean, any comparisons to be drawn with Hunger Games? Like we're talking post-apocalyptic bows and arrows against oppression. Yeah, <laughs> I, has anyone ever? Um, <coughs> you know, it's it's the same old curse. If you ever do a cinematic treatment of. Uh, the Moon Man and Red Hawk, and people will say, "Oh, this just sounds like the Hunger Games." Yeah. Well, we do. We do. I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but we do have our own um, uh, kind of movie movie script program at, uh, at Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated. So we actually do have a new script written for uh, for for actually in particular for the Red Hawk, and then we've had it adapted to TV episode script so um, hopefully someday that'll get picked up and we'll be able to get a deal there but you know I think it's I think that's a, that would be a great television series you know streaming series right you know and you could have the flashbacks from the different you could set it in the, and set it in the Red Hawk period and have the flashbacks to the different lives It'd be quite amazing uh, related to Burroughs concept of timelessness or a lack of time, and uh, he also had an obsession with, and in the reincarnation, uh, he also had an obsession with immortality, which I think is related to that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Don Carter doesn't remember when he was born. Yeah. He doesn't seem to age. Uh, Tarzan, after the quest, and Jane have immortality, essentially. Yeah. Uh, there's a running thing with that. And of course, David Ennis, when he's at the Earth's core, don't seem to age there. Yeah, that's uh, true. Was wishful thinking on Burroughs' part? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's got that same, Julian has that same sort of mysterious, you know, that same mystery behind, like, why is, it, why is he this way? As John Carter does, right? Because we don't know why he's always, always just been there, you know? And, you know, what does, how far back does he remember, you know? Early on, you said that you had uh, previous versions of the manuscript. Does anyone have the ones that were the political version, the ones that he originally submitted, that before it got converted into the Moon Maid? For under under the red flag, yes, yeah. So I'm I'm I'm. I'll just like do a little speculation here, but you know we're reprinting the Agarisper's authorized library. We're reprinting all of his works in these you know really nice definitive editions. With a lot of bonus materials in them, you know the the Red Hawk. I really want to do that as its own book because it's not usually done as its own book, except for in the Jim Gerlach. I think that might be the first, might be the first edition that splits it. But I would like to do that in the authorized library as well because I want Joe Jusco to paint covers for each of them. <laughs> but that's a super thin book, so I know we're about out of time here. Uh, I guess we're out of time. But I would like to put that uh, in under the red flag at the back of the Red Hawk. So then, you know, it'll equalize the sizes of the volumes. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting to see. But you can see he did it really quickly, so it's not, it's not greatly different, but it's interesting to see the changes that he did. So thank you all. I think we're out of time now. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This pulp event podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.